Thanks for tuning to Digital Voices Podcast, where we chat digital transformation, challenges and opportunities across healthcare and life sciences. And now, your host, Ed Marks. Digital Voices with Ed Marks. Thanks for joining me. I know you have a lot of choices of what to do with your time. And you chose to listen to Digital Voices. And I just want to let you know that I really appreciate you. And I I really am thankful for all of you listening and and what you do. I know we have a lot of clinicians out there taking care of patients. And we have a lot of digital officers and uh, CIOs and CXOs of all sorts and fighting the good fight out there. And I just want to thank you for being a listener. And your reward is my friend Jed. So, Jed, welcome to Digital Voices. Thank you, Ed. It's so great to be with you today. So, Jed is a chief health informatics officer at a premier institution, and really the formal, uh, your formal name would be J. Edward, Dr. J. Edward Madella. And um, so we really appreciate what you do as well, taking care of patients. So thank you for taking the time to be with us. So we first met back, it was in July, 2023, and we were at a conference and I heard you speak like no other. So I'm, I'm a student of, of speakers. I'm always trying to learn how to get better. So I'm always listening intently on the topics as well as how people articulate themselves and present themselves. And it's not often that someone like just captures my attention the way you did. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to get Jed on digital voices. So that's when we first met. And I, I was like, I was like really touched by what you spoke about. And we're going to hit some of that on this episode. So, so thrilled that you're here. So the first question we always ask is songs on your playlist, Jed. So what kind of music do you like to listen to? Oh, Ed, my personal playlist has literally been thrown out our car window because my nine-year-old son, who dominates our family's playlist every time we're on the road together, uh, his current favorites are Imagine Dragons, Crash Adams, BTS. In the past, this actually ranged from Michael Jackson to Bruno Mars, Usher, all the way to Ed Sheeran. Maroon 5, and even Post Malone. So in short, Ed, his playlist has become mine as well. Wow. For a nine-year-old, that's that's a pretty vast playlist. And so he'll probably be thrilled that Usher is going to be the Super Bowl yeah, featured artist. Yeah, I saw that uh, announcement. Correct. Yeah. And actually, this past summer, we took him to watch Usher. Yeah, he was the youngest right. youngest kid in there, and it was a phenomenal time. Yeah, I've seen Usher in concert, and I really, really like him. A lot of the tunes were, uh, especially uh, for me, about eight to ten years ago, mm-hmm. uh, were really informative and and ones I listened to quite a bit. What about your life message? Like, is there a mantra or some sort of words that you live by? I do actually have a life message. I consider it my personal mission statement, and it's only six words: inspire all to give our best. So the seeds for this mantra were actually planted during my senior year of college. I was working with a sports psychologist because I was unsatisfied with my performance on the basketball court, which at that time, I was a third string point guard riding the pine and not getting much playing time. Midway through our second session together, he looked at me dead straight in the eyes and he says, Jed, you're not that good to be this hard on yourself. 
And it was an aha moment. It actually helped release the shackles of perfectionism, allowed me to accept not really my flaws or shortcomings, but who I truly was as a young collegiate student athlete. Not surprisingly, this energy of acceptance led to better performance on the court as well as in the classroom. And most importantly, enjoying the sport that I fell in love with when I was eight years old. So in short, Dr. Paul Selitsky, I I thank him to this day. He helped me understand the power of self-compassion and it's applicable now and relevant because I have opportunities every day to be self-compassionate and also give my best to others. Yeah, that's that's great. And that's super profound and, and super important. So you've really already let us in a little bit on your story. Why don't you take us through your journey, like to where you are today? Like you can go back as far as you want, personal, professional, but tell us a little bit about Jed. Sure. I was born in the Philippines and immigrated with my parents to America when my father, a military colonel at the time, was stationed in the Philippine Embassy in Washington, D.C., while my mother entered her second pediatric residency program at Georgetown University because she had already completed one at the University of the Philippines. When I was 10, we moved to Vallejo, California for my mom's job. And growing up in the Bay area at that time was really great. I was surrounded by tons of cousins, aunts, uncles, ninongs and ninangs, which by the way, means godparents in our native language of Tagalog. We loved to get together on weekends. It felt like being part of a village within a greater community. I went to small Catholic schools, which allowed me to play any sport I wanted, right? Basketball, I mentioned, football, baseball, tennis track. I mean, you name it. I would have wrestled, but it was the same season as hoops. And looking back, I I probably would have been better at it since I only stand five feet, five inches tall. Um, And all of this led to attending college at the University of California at Davis, where I double majored in psychology and exercise science. My initial plans were actually to pursue a PhD in sports psychology. But during my senior year, moms put an offer on the table that I just couldn't refuse. She encouraged me to give med school a try and she'd pay for it. If I still wanted to pursue a sports psych career, she'd support it, but after med school. And while I didn't go into the field I thought I was meant for as a kid, you know, who loved playing sports, 20 plus years later, Ed, and listening to moms certainly paid off for me and I'm doing okay. You had a big sports background. Are you doing much with sports today? Are you still pretty active? Yeah, I try to keep active. I play pickup basketball. Um, I'm play a lot of golf. My son just started to get into pickleball um, just this past weekend, actually. So we're going to pick up some paddles and perhaps start to play on weekends. That's very cool. Hey, let's talk about your professional journey. So what's been the best of your career so far? You're, you're still a pretty young person, and but I know you've done a lot of great things already. What, what are some highlights? I've been very blessed, Ed. Um, right after residency, I worked for a federally qualified health center, and their mission was clear. It was to work with the customers that we serve. I recall being a physician representative on patient focus groups. We would listen to their needs and actually incorporated their suggestions into the construction of a new clinic at that time. It helped lay a solid foundation for a career in clinical and health informatics. I consider myself a thoughtful steward of the position I'm currently in, which is chief of our informatics department. My decisions are rarely swayed by bright, shiny objects, initiatives, or the flavor of the month, if I'm allowed to steal that phrase from one of my favorite colleagues, our chief of organizational excellence. 
our decisions as leaders are grounded in our North Star of delivering the best care paired with the best experience possible within a healthcare setting. That's pretty cool. And what about digital? I know you're you're fairly digital savvy. Are there one or two examples of some things that your organization or you've been part of that you know you're most proud of? We do have a currently a handful in the pipeline, Ed, but let me share this past example with you today. When the WHO declared COVID-19 a worldwide pandemic, I worked with our informatics managers to swiftly transition our entire team to telework, which at that time, we only had one fully virtual employee. Now everyone was working virtually. Information about COVID was changing rapidly. Managing operations was chaotic, to say the least. I needed a way to keep our team informed and connected. Our CEO started monthly all-employee virtual town halls, so I decided to clone her idea by starting an internal weekly town hall for our informatics team members, which helped to keep all of us informed and on the same sheet of music throughout the pandemic. Towards the end, The need for sharing information early and often began to dwindle as our health system found its battle rhythm with delivering care after the multiple COVID surges. However, we did discover one side effect to having our entire department work virtually, and it's that our team members felt isolated. To address this, we morphed our weekly virtual mini town hall into a remote happy half hour. Every Friday for about half an hour, our team members had the opportunity to hop on a virtual call, turn on cameras, tell stories, laugh together, share pictures of their dogs, cats, parrots, grandkids, recent vacations, and even gifts making fun of me because I grew up my hair temporarily during the pandemic. First time I ever rocked a man bun, Ed. And I'm delighted that (laughs) others found joy in either laughing with me or at me. I share this because it illustrates how digital platforms can enhance and strengthen human connections. On a personal note, my mom has four sisters and one brother spread across the U.S., Canada, and the Philippines. They also have a weekly call to laugh both with and at sometimes each other or themselves. Yeah, that's really important. I'm just watching the Netflix series by a friend of mine who will also be on Digital Voices soon, uh, Dan Buchner, oh, uh, yes. called the uh, Blue Zone. That's right. And, uh, you know, one of the key, I don't want to give it away. If no one's ever read the book or seen this stuff before. But, you know, one of the keys to longevity is having that tight circle like you're describing, like with your that your mom has. And, and, and in a way, the, in the workplace as well, I think it does do a lot of the same thing. So that's pretty cool. Is there a moment when you reflect back on your career that you kind of just say, wow, like that was pretty awesome or that was pretty cool. Didn't expect that. Anything like that? Absolutely. The highlight of my career thus far is having the opportunity to align the individual talents of our informatics team members with the mission of our healthcare system. I'm grateful to my parents, wife and son, brother, sister, extended family, even our neighbors, friends who I consider family, coworkers, colleagues, wonderful bosses, supervisors, mentors and coaches who all believed in me, especially during the times when I lacked belief in myself. Their support has and continues to be priceless. Yeah, very cool. Now, I want to switch topics here and dive into the, what you presented when we first met back in Denver in July 23. And it had to be compassion under the weight of metrics. 
So we all are metric to death and you've got some stats and I don't want to steal your sun thunder if you, if you do share those, but let's talk first definitionally, what is compassion and how does it differ from sympathy and empathy? Sure. My understanding deepened after coming across an article published by the Harvard Business Review titled, Effective Leaders Move Beyond Empathy to Compassion. I'll share highlights of this publication because the authors clarify the differences between pity, sympathy, empathy, and compassion. Pity is feeling sorry for someone or something, which is different from sympathy. Sympathy is not feeling sorry, but actually feeling for another person. The key word here is for. So sending condolences to someone for the recent passage of a loved one is one example of expressing sympathy. Empathy, on the other hand, is feeling with another. And the key word there is with. When you experience empathy, you can begin to understand what another person's emotions are. And this is where it gets exciting, Ed, because once you pair that understanding of another's experience with the genuine, authentic action, that's the winning equation for compassion. It's empathy plus action. So here's a simple example. Two weeks ago, my three-year-old nephew noticed one of his classmates in preschool was sitting on grass with a sad face while everyone else had a ball to play with during recess, except this one classmate. He walked over with a ball in hand, crouched down, and handed him the ball. The teacher captured the moment by snapping a pic and texting texting it to my sister, who then shared it with me. Ed, it simply melted my heart, brought a smile to my face, and likely will be the most memorable text message I received this year. Yeah, I loved it. And you did share it with me as well. And it was uh, pretty poignant. I, I, I really appreciated it. So explain the burden of metrics and... Uh, and are there unintended consequences? So take us back, if you can, you know, a high level, but, you know, how we started to metric ourselves to death, all for good reasons. And then, you know, it's just the whole burden of it and the unintended consequence. Sure. So an example of my nephew, he reminds us that compassion is a natural part of being human. And one I assert as the leading reasons many of us choose a career in healthcare to begin with. But when we think about metrics per se, especially our hardworking frontline staff and clinicians, it almost propels us on the other side of the spectrum where empathy and compassion are scarce commodities. One can argue measurement is completely objective without emotion. However, when we subscribe to this narrative, we can get lost in the ocean of metrics. Take CMS.gov, it has thousands of metrics in its measures inventory. Individual healthcare delivery organizations across the country manage over hundreds of measures spanning quality metrics, process measures, structural measures, fiscal, red cycle metrics, KPIs or key performance indicators, employee and customer experience metrics, and so on. While leaders within our HDOs are ultimately responsible for achieving success with all these metrics, everyone can feel the burden, especially when we're in the red or underperforming. The majority working towards success for these metrics want to be in the green, signaling that they're quote unquote, meeting the measure. 
it's no surprise that a data analyst can get consumed by getting from 15% to 18% for an obscure metric because 18% gets them in the green. Or take an IT technician straining to close an open service ticket within 72 hours as opposed to leaving it open until the issue is completely resolved merely because closing tickets faster is perceived as better. Yeah, those are some some really good examples. And certainly we sort of became obsessed, you know, with metrics. And I, I don't remember the exact number and I don't want to put you on the spot, Jed, but weren't there like hundreds of, or thousands, thousands of metrics that we're all like as a hospital that we're beholden to, uh, to meet. So I may be exaggerating a little bit, but there's a lot of metrics. No, you're spot on. There's thousands on there. As I mentioned, you can go to the cms.gov inventory and they have inventories of thousands of metrics. And that's not to mention CMS is not the only governing body out there who are determining what metrics of success are for healthcare. Um, It's exponential at this point. Yeah. And then depending on your hospital, you know, the, the hospital administration may may throw some more on there as well. And yeah, everything's well intended. But like we said, and you pointed out, we have unintended consequences. What was the intention of quality metrics? And, and so how do we get back there? Great question here, Ed. And I don't want to give off the wrong impression. Measurement in healthcare is important and necessary. And as you mentioned, well-intentioned. What I assert is that we as leaders in this space must help our teams and colleagues understand the essence of metrics. For example, the chief of staff at our hospital helped me solidify this belief. In one of our meetings last year, we were discussing strategic analytics and its impact on patient care. He shared with me his belief that everything we do in the background is meant to enhance this doctor, patient, provider, patient, clinician, patient, and better yet, healthcare professional and patient relationship. So I credit him with coining what I call a keystone concept. A keystone in architecture is a central stone at the top of an arc, locking the whole together. It's also defined as a central concept on which all else depends. So to answer your question, Ed, regarding how do we get back there, I don't have the perfect answer. I myself am working at it every day. However, what I do know and what I advocate for is to begin with a compassionate stance. Compassion for frontline staff who feel overburdened by the ever-increasing number of metrics they need to achieve all while delivering outstanding patient care. Compassion for the leaders ultimately responsible for the fiscal and operational well-being of a healthcare enterprise. And even empathy for the metric makers at the highest levels of healthcare leadership, both in the public and commercial sectors. I'm confident we have brilliant, well-educated, well-intentioned professionals deciding what healthcare as a whole needs to measure. And Ed, don't take offense, but not to put you or me down here, I highly doubt neither you nor I can do a better job than them. What I would ask, however, are, are the following questions. Are we measuring what matters most? Can we consolidate many of these metrics, maybe even remove, eliminate, or sunset some? What are the priority or North Star measures that truly support the keystone concept shared today. Yeah, that's good analysis. And, you know, it just reminds me, Jed, we used to do a lot of metrics. It's completely different, but at the same time, 
somewhat related. A lot of metrics about IT, like how effective is IT? How, you know, what, what are all the benchmarks for IT? And you could do the same thing. You could roll out all these ITIL libraries and different things and have a hundred. But I think the most effective team I ever had is when we got it down to one. Right. And the metric was, was satisfaction, mm-hmm. like clinician satisfaction, customer satisfaction with IT. Because that seemed to embed it all because maybe we didn't have 999, you know, five nines of uptime. Maybe for a variety of reasons, it was four nines. But all the other things we did, mm-hmm. you know, made the service, you know, super good. You know, so so I get you. And it's it's hard. Yeah, I have a lot of respect for the for the people who, who come up with the metrics and, and the intent behind it. So we're definitely not we're not definitely casting shadows at them, but certainly we don't want to, we need to bring in and highlight this sort of compassion. Well said, Ed. What are some, 100%. Fra- yeah, what are some frameworks? Like I know that you have a framework uh, because you, you shared it uh, back in July uh, to deliver compassionate care. So I, w- I would love to talk about uh, this framework. Sure. And in the interest of time, I'll, I'll share this framework. Um, hopefully the members can take it home today um, to their homes and offices. And I'll give you a little bit of background first. I had the privilege of working with an exceptional physician, leader, and teacher, Dr. Marcy Moffitt, who started and still runs the doctoring curriculum at the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Phoenix. This course is designed to expose first and second year medical students to live, interactive patient encounters through the use of standardized patients, actors and actresses trained to portray specific patient scenarios with known diagnoses. During the last year of working with Dr. Moffitt, my last year of working with her, I was her assistant director for the program and oversaw faculty preceptors who delivered feedback to medical students based on how they interacted in the patient room. Feedback can range from physical exam techniques to asking the correct questions while taking a history of present illness, all the way to how med students express empathy for the standardized patient actors. Now, please pardon the sports analogy here. I do consider Dr. Moffitt the Coach K for teaching empathy and compassion to medical students who have the privilege of experiencing her course. Hall of Fame coach Mike Krzyzewski graduated from West Point, which inspired his military-like basketball practices at Duke University. Similarly, Dr. Moffitt's afternoon class schedules are rigorous and planned down to the minute, even incorporating transition time between learning modules. Let's just say much like it's good to, it's a good idea to use the restroom before scrubbing into a surgery. It's just as important to take a bio break before the series of Dr. Moffitt's afternoon learning modules. We took the business of teaching these quote unquote soft skills in medicine very seriously. So now that I set the stage, the core of Dr. Moffitt's curriculum is teaching the nurse method. NURSE stands for N-E-U-R-S, and it's an acronym adapted from the 2002 textbook titled Patient-Centered Interviewing. N stands for naming the core emotion being experienced by the standardized patient. E is for explore. We coach students to ask open-ended questions to gather more information about the patient's emotional experience. U is delivering an understanding statement, such as it's completely understandable, you feel this way. And R is a reminder to deliver a respect statement to acknowledge and validate the patient's willingness to share what most would consider vulnerable information. And lastly, we encourage students to deliver a support statement, which can be as simple as I'm here to help. Yeah, I like that. Um, 
Anything else about, and I like the acronym, although it's not spelled the same, it's N-E-U-R-S, but it sounds like nurse, so it helps me remember. Correct. Um, Yeah, the E was inserted because the patient-centered interviewing book is just nurse, N-U-R-S. Dr. Moffat adapted it and realized that students need to explore the emotion a little bit more, so she added the E. All right, I'm convinced. Where do I start? (laughs) Well, are you game for some role-playing, Ed? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So think of something you've been challenged with lately, plus the one to two core emotions associated with this challenge. I'll play the role of an acquaintance, coworker, colleague, or friend, whatever the situation calls for. Ready when you are. Yeah. So a challenge. So, you know, I'm in, I, I, I run this Mark's advisory firm and I help vendors, partners to better operate in the marketplace. And so that's a, that's a challenge is like how to, to help them, you know, they, they all want to talk to, uh, let's pick on my friend, Chris Ross at Mayo Clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of the challenge. Uh, and the, some of the emotions around there are rejection, right? No one wants to be rejected. I don't want to be viewed as a salesperson. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, that's part of the core emotions. Like I, 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 not that there's anything wrong with a salesperson, but it's just not my sort of personality. And then the fear of rejection. So those are a couple of emotions associated with, Hey, everyone, you know, wants me to, you know, leverage my close relationships. Gotcha, Ed. So I'm sensing a bit of uncertainty of how to deal with this aspect of your business. Can you tell me a little bit more about the uncertainty? Yeah, you know, I, I want to be true to my friendships and I want to also help my clients succeed. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to do anything that's going to degrade my in my core principles or, you know, again, you know, there's this whole fear thing. Like I, you don't want to be rejected. You don't want someone to say no or, or not you know, or ghost you, Mm -hmm, you know, so mm -hmm. those are some of the emotions. You know, given what you told me here today, it's completely understandable that you'd feel some sort of fear and uncertainty in progressing with your business. I want to tell you that as your colleague, I respect you for sharing that information with me today. Uh, I want you to know that although it is not my subject matter expertise, I'm going to do anything I can to support you, whether that's listening to any situations, maybe bouncing some ideas um, the next time you encounter something like this. So um, after today, know that you have my email address, you have my phone number, shoot me a text. If uh, you need to talk through any situation, I'm happy to be there for you. All right. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, yeah. So that, uh, yeah, that's, that's really reassuring, right? That you're listening to me. That's how I felt, right? I, right. I feel like listened to, I feel cared for. You're trying to get me, you're trying to understand the best you can and, and that you, uh, reaffirm me. And, and, and so I, I like it. I could see how it'd be really effective. And I gave you like a real thing. I was authentic there. Oh, that's great. Didn't yeah. This, Thank uh, you. Ed. And I know, so, you know, the listeners, get kind of the behind the curtain view of this. When it happens in real life, not everyone is aware of the nurse framework and it takes practice. Yeah. One of the criticisms that our students gave us was it feels fake, Dr. Moffitt, Dr. Medella. And we basically stood our ground and said, it takes practice. So yeah, it may feel fake in front of a standardized patient who is coached to play a cholecystitis or appendicitis case. But when you get in the real world, because you have practiced it, because you have gone through these drills, 
um, you're going to be able to apply the tool in real time. I like that. Let's sort of head down towards our time together. I like to talk a lot about leadership. We just have uh, one or two minutes. So I'm going to ask you about compassion. Are you born with it or can you learn compassion? You know, Ed, we are uh, the most complex mammals on this planet. We're born to depend on each other. We also act out of self-interest. Both coexist within us for survival as individuals, as well as as a species. Compassion is best learned when self-interest is aligned with service for others. Take the example I shared earlier about our faculty preceptors coaching medical students how to nurse. Each student's self-interest is to become a fully licensed practicing physician. Becoming a physician is both born out of the desire to serve, paired with self-interest to acquire some pretty impressive skills and be part of a noble profession. But compassion is not only for healing vocations. You can find it in many other industries. One good friend of mine is an electrical engineer who works on rockets. Yes, he's literally practices applied (laughs) rocket science. But he's not only that, he's also a tennis professional sponsored by one of the top tennis brands in the world. Yet all of his impressive accolades pale in comparison to the type of person he is in his personal life, a loving, empathetic husband, a middle child who actually takes the lead in caring for his aging (laughs) parents, a thoughtful friend who takes the time to send you a hilarious text midweek to brighten your day. So yes, Ed, compassion can be taught. We can learn how to increase our own capacity for practicing compassion, but I assert that it is within all of us, just waiting to be expressed and expressed fully, which is possible when we aligned our human tendency for self-interest towards a mission to serve others and a greater cause greater than ourselves. Well, Jed, this has been fabulous. I wish we had more time to talk about leadership, but but I, I loved all the time that we spent really on the core of our conversation today around the concept of compassion and, and the, the situation we find ourselves in with the burden of metrics. And so I really appreciate all that you shared as well as your professional journey. And is there anything that we missed or something you want to double down on as we close? Yes. And it's actually a confession, Ed. Uh, I ventured out of my comfort zone because I'm not used to being the one doing most of the talking. My tendency and preference is actually to listen and learn. I believe it's the Dalai Lama who is credited with the quote, when you talk, you're only repeating what you already know. But if you listen, you may learn something new. With that in mind, your second question for today really resonated with me, and I'm interested to hear what is your life message, mantra, or personal mission statement, because you certainly are someone I'd love to learn from. Well, you know, my mission statement is really four words, and then I'll I'll tell you my separate sort of vision. Uh, But my mission is I I know I've been called to, to share, to serve, to shape, and to study. Um, so shape myself, shape others, share my faith, share my things that I've been taught, share my learnings, serve others, serve my family and study, always learning. Uh, but, but I sum it up in my vision statement, which is to live a life beyond reproach as to not cause others to stumble in their pursuit of God. So I want to live my life in a way that people say, hmm, maybe there is a God or there, or, or there must be a God. <laughs> <laughs> if, if Ed can be successful. So uh, that's, that's really it. That, that's what my, 
my mission statement as a vision statement. I love that, Ed. And and when I met you, you know, this past summer, um, I could tell that you are living your mission and through the good work that you're doing here with this podcast, you're really giving a voice to all of us working in the digital health space, hence the name. So I really applaud you and acknowledge you for all the good work that you're doing. And it's an honor to have been a guest on your show today. Well, Jed, I appreciate that. And and again, I appreciate you. Uh, your organization is super blessed to have you. Your patients, wow, they must, they're doubly blessed. Uh, I wish, uh, you know, I would definitely use you as my provider <laughs> if you were in the same geographic area. But you, you're, you're truly a, a, a fascinating person with, a, with great compassion, uh, with great care, uh, love for others, a heart of service. Um, all the things that I aspire to be. So thank you for being our guest. Thank you, Ed. Till next time. Yeah, that wraps up Digital Voices. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to Digital Voices Podcast with Ed Marks. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on your preferred streaming service and leave a rating and review. And most importantly, thanks again for listening.